But this morning, I want you to think about your friends. So your good friends, your best friends, maybe even your family. I want you to really think about what it took to develop those relationships. And now, imagine being pulled apart from those same people. Think how you would miss them, how you would want to see them, how you might worry about them. And that's the situation that Paul finds himself in in these first few verses uh, from our passage. So um, let's read together from 1 Thessalonians. Um, we'll start in chapter 2, and we'll go uh, we'll read 17 and 18. Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Will you join me in prayer before we go on any further? Father, we just come to you this morning and we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your house and open your word, Lord. I pray that you will uh, just help me to speak truth uh, clearly, uh, Lord, and uh, with your power. Uh, I do pray for Aaron uh, and his family, um, just for healing uh, and safety during this time. Lord, I also pray for our country and the rest of our country. We thank you uh, that we've taken a step towards the sanctity of life, God. Um, but I just pray that you would just open the eyes and hearts of, of people out there to see your truth, Lord. But we thank you for your word and what it can do, uh, that it can sharpen our hearts and our minds and sanctify us to be more like you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So, uh, first today I want to talk about authentic relationships. Um, this is what Paul was basically concerned with uh, in, in the church here. He was concerned with both preaching the gospel and spending time with these new Christians in order to disciple them. Think about this, students. This is the ancient world, where you couldn't get information with the tip of your fingers. <clears throat> no cars to drive to nearby friends' houses, no texts, no phone calls, no emails. Y'all can use email if you want to find it. And no news did not necessarily mean good news. To be separated from someone in this day and age was to be absolutely apart. Even if you're only separated by a handful of miles, you could be in the next town and would have no idea about what's going on. So in this case, Paul found himself separated from the church at Thessalonica. So if we think back to last week when Aaron was teaching, uh, verses 14 through 16, which I didn't read, but they basically talk about uh, the persecution of these new believers in Thessalonica by the Jews. If you recall, the Jews were claiming to be the only true inheritors of God's blessing. <clears throat> So here Paul's expressing deep concern for these believers that he was forced to leave behind, in part because of this persecution that they were experiencing. In his longing to see them, he actually uses really strong language. Some of that's lost in translation. Uh, but commentators note that the phrase torn away, which he used here in verse 17, is actually goes back to a word that refers to a, a child being orphaned from his parents, or a parent being taken away from a child. So he's using very strong family imagery here. As a matter of fact, the English word orphan comes from this Greek word. I'm not going to try to pronounce or spell this Greek word for you, but I guarantee you I get it wrong. Um, but just know that that's where we get our word orphan from. So let's look at some of the more familiar words that Paul uses in these verses. Uh, first, he says he endeavored to see them. So what does endeavor mean? That word means to try hard, to work hard, to do or achieve something. This is because relationships take work, right? 
you don't become close friends, you don't develop a deep relationship with someone at the drop of a hat with no effort. You don't just walk in and become best friends. Deep personal relationships take work, which includes the investment of time, emotional energy, vulnerability. All of those things are important as we develop deep relationships with our friends and especially our fellow believers. Um, next, we see that Paul says he was eager to see them. So these kind of authentic relationships cause us to anticipate that time that we get to spend with these people. This is even more true than we've been apart. I can think of times my kids, for example, have gone on trips without me to camp or to their grandparents' house. As those days go by, I anticipate their return more and more and more. Uh, so I really look forward to the reunion with them. I'm eager to see them, and I hope they're eager to see me. Uh, that might be debatable after trip grandma's house. You know. But um, so Paul here is demonstrating his great desire to see these fellow believers. Uh, these real personal relationships make us want to spend that time with these people. Like I said, it really doesn't even feel like work or effort at times when we get to hang out with these people who we're close to. But perhaps most forgotten in our current world is the fact that Paul was really wanting to see these folks face to face. Nowadays, we have so many ways to communicate and stay in touch. Phones, texts, social media, there's just a myriad of ways that we can stay in touch with people. But why do we find that people are more lonely now than ever before? I saw a study from uh, Cigna which said that in 2019, 58% of U.S. adults experienced loneliness. And this was even before the pandemic, so I imagine it got even worse uh, through the pandemic. Interestingly, if you break it down by age, in this survey, they found that young adults were twice as likely to feel loneliness than our senior adults. I just have to wonder, and I don't have proof of this, but I have to wonder if all these other means of communications that we sort of replace face-to-face relationships with are, are, are worse as far as, as these deep relationships. Perhaps our older adults are more apt to see their friends and relatives face-to-face, even if less often. I would suggest that one in-person visit is more important for a relationship than multiple texts or emails or phone calls. Now, they can be useful, you know, texts and phone calls and emails, but they are not the foundation that these real relationships are built on. They are merely a supplement to real time spent in person, undistracted by screens. If I can encourage you to one thing this morning, it would be to put down the phone and enjoy your friends face to face. You will find your relationships will strengthen, they will blossom when screens are removed from the, from the equation. Um, lastly, you can see that Paul says he tried again and again. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day, and neither of these authentic relationships that we're after. And these aren't just relationships for the sake of fun. I would challenge you to develop these kind of relationships with fellow Christian brothers and sisters who can hold you accountable, who can challenge you in your walk with the Lord. And sometimes that means talking about things that are difficult, but rewarding, sometimes awkward but sanctifying, sometimes convicting, but cleansing. But in the end, I think these conversations can be joyful and hopeful. So if we look at the end of uh, verse 18, I find there's a pretty interesting phrase there that Paul says that Satan hindered us. You know, you wonder why Satan would hinder them, and I think it's because these kind of relationships that Paul is forming with these new believers and the work of the gospel are prime targets for Satan. Um, he benefits from threatening these types of relationships and the work of the gospel. 
We'll talk a lot more at the end because he, Paul sort of goes into it further, but I'll just give you a few points here. You know, Satan can attack gospel ministry in many ways. You can think about a canceled flight for a missionary team. You know, this summer that's going on all over the place. Flights are canceled left and right, and you know, it may be that that flight is canceled as, as part of spiritual warfare. Think about a positive COVID test before Bible school that impacts a teacher, a leader, or even a kid who's on the cusp of believing the gospel. Think of an obligation that comes up from preventing you from spending time with a fellow believer who you're discipling, who might be in need at that point in time, or being run out of town by evil leaders. I think this was Paul's case as he's writing to the church. I think that's why he was hindered from returning again and again and again. But students, I want you to take heart. Sometimes God uses Satan's apparent victories even to his advantage. For example, perhaps if Paul had been able to go back to the church in Thessalonica, he might not have needed to write these two letters that were inspired by the Holy Spirit, two letters which have been instrumental in the church for 2,000 years. So let's move on to the next couple of verses. We'll be looking at verses 19 and 20 in chapter 2. So Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So here, uh, Paul is talking about the new believers in the Thessalonian church as his glory and joy. So he asks the question in the first verse and answers it in the next one. He says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting? And then he answers it for you, these new believers in, Thessalon in the Thessalonian church, are our glory and joy. Um, Paul says they're his crown of boasting at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Because he says, you know, that phrase, at his coming. Um, he sees these new believers as the fruit of his labors that he desires to joyfully present to King Jesus at his second coming. Additionally, I think Paul is actually encouraged and even assured of his own faith as he watches the Thessalonian church persevere through these trials. Seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in others works to strengthen even Paul's faith, and it can work to strengthen our faith. That's why a body of believers is so important. When you see God doing mighty things in other people, that just reaffirms and reassures your, your own beliefs. I find it interesting if you look in Philippians, Paul said very, very similar things to the church of Philippi. In Philippians 4 1, he said, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. So again, you can see this longing that Paul had for his fellow believers in this case, too. And in Philippians 2.16, uh, he instructed the church that they might be found holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So because of this assurance of his own faith that Paul received from these other believers running a good, good race, he really longed to see them. So I found the phrase crown of boasting a little bit interesting. So let's take a couple minutes to talk about this. So this is not a reference to a crown like a king or royalty would have. But this, is, this is instead a reference to the crown of uh, like oak leaves or laurel that you would see given to the victors in like the ancient Olympics and ancient games. Um, you know, so Paul's stating this as his his victory, you know, in, in the work of the Lord. So his crown here is indicative of the fruit being produced by Paul's obedience, but by God's and only God's power in the Thessalonian church. Um, you know. Paul is celebrating the victory that God has produced in these people, but using 
him as, as a tool, as an instrument to, to produce this victory. Um, in, in the second verse there, he also says at his coming, which I sort of mentioned before, that also has great significance. Um, per one commentator that I read, the Greek word used here is to describe a king arriving at a city. So he's using this to refer to Jesus at his second coming. You know, these king's visitations would be revered and sometimes even feared. Uh, so I think at this point, when Christ comes in his full majesty, his followers will revere him and worship him, but his enemies will fall down in fear. Um, you know, I think of Paul's boasting here as something similar to parents boasting of their children. These are his spiritual children. He's invested time and energy and effort. Uh, so you know how joyful new parents can be. You know, we see Aaron up here talking about Abe a lot, right? When they reach a milestone, they're joyful. Um, you know, we use the word boasting in English, it sort of has a negative connotation, right? It's like bragging, but not so here, you know, and not so in the case of new parents first boasting about the first kid's steps. Um, here, Paul is using this as a good godly thing. It's a little confusing. You know, if we look back to some of Paul's other writings in Galatians, Paul says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So how do we reconcile Paul boasting here in these new believers with, with that verse? So I think Paul is basking in the ongoing work of grace of God in these new converts. So ultimately, he's looking past his efforts in the believers and celebrating the work of God that's producing their faith. Psalms 37.4 says, To delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So here, Paul's really speaking out of the desires of his heart. He's boasting in the desires of his heart because he's delighting himself in the Lord. So if those align, you know, God will reward that. And when you, you boast in that, you're boasting in God's work in the people that you see. Um, unfortunately, from here on out, it gets a little less fun. We get to talk about trials, and we get to talk about the, the reality of the devil and Satan. Um, so we're going to move on to chapter 3 in, in 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to read 1 through 5. So Paul writes again, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we would be willing to we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. So in the first, Paul says he, he could bear it no longer. So what is it that he could bear no longer? Uh, I think it was a couple of things. I think it was a separation from his fellow but new believers that he was discipling. And I think it was his concern about the status of their faith despite these trials in the middle of these storms. Uh, I find it interesting to think about that when Paul was actually writing this letter, he actually already knew the answer. I'll give you a little preview the next week, but Timothy returns and says that their faith had been found you know, solid. Um, so Paul knew this at the time of writing this, but but wanted to encourage them with this passage. But let's go back to verse one. So Paul starts by uh, laying out Timothy's credentials as his ambassador to the church there. So they would have known Timothy, um, but they obviously would have been, you know, known Paul uh, more. 
Uh, but Paul and Silas were run out of town. Apparently, Timothy was not included in the in the uh, being run out of town by the leaders. Um, but he calls him his brother, which gives him you know uh, standing as, as a brother in Christ. And he calls himself God's co-worker, which is a little confusing. But I think what that means is is he's calling him a co-worker of himself and Silas, who all belong to God. So it's not like Timothy is working right alongside God, but Timothy's working alongside Paul and Silas, who were all part of God's uh, um, workers. So why does Paul send Timothy? He sends them to establish and exhort them in their faith. These aren't words we use a lot, um, but also to explain them uh, uh, to you. So to establish, the definition means to set up on a firm or permanent basis. Um, one very famous place this word is used is in the Constitution, when the founding fathers of the U.S. established the Constitution as the governing document for our country. They actually use the word established twice in the first sentence. So, um, you know, it's a solid document that governs our country. Um, Timothy was also sent to exhort them. So exhort, uh, a better phrase nowadays for us would be to strongly encourage. Uh, you can think of it as a, as a parent sort of encouraging his kid at the finish line to finish a race or, or, or you know, to to study hard for that test, so strongly encourage you uh, to finish something. So, the reason Paul sent Timothy was to hope that his presence would mean that no one was moved by these afflictions or trials. So, Timothy's job was to help the Thessalonians be like the wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And not like the foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Uh, that's written in Matthew 7, uh, 24 through 27. Um, I paraphrased a little bit, but, uh, but that's a lot of the great word. So students, it's important to know that in our Christian life, trials will you see that in the parable I just read from Matthew. Both the wise and the foolish man dealt with waves, rain, and flood. But the outcome of where they planted themselves dealt with the outcome of these trials. The wise man built himself on the rock, his house stayed. The foolish man built himself on the sand, and his house came down with great fall. So full disclosure is important. I think when we're talking to new believers, to students, that we don't need to paint a picture that there will no, be no trials in the Christian walk. So in the world of medicine, um, we have something called informed consent. So if you go in to have a surgery done, the physician has to explain it to you, both the possible good, the hopeful good, but also the possible bad. You know, there's always a chance that something could go wrong and, and you may not see the results we'd expected. And we actually are told to tell our patients the good and bad. So that way when something, if in the rare occasion something does happen, they were prepared for it. Um, in the same way, it's important for new believers to understand that trials will come despite a person seeking God and even trying to follow God with all their heart. If we don't know that ahead of time, we can be really discouraged during the storms of our life and prone to think that God doesn't care about us or is punishing us. When we know that these times will come, May, these times will come, that we are even told beforehand that it will happen, 
we can lean on God and his promise to help carry us through them. So these trials can actually strengthen rather than shake our faith if we are prepared. Um, so Paul reminds them of that. He gives them informed consent in verse 4. He says, I told you beforehand, you were to suffer affliction just as has come to pass and just as you know. So they were well aware that they were suffering those trials. So this shouldn't come as a surprise to us. You know, we live in a fallen world. Uh, Gordon Fee writes, and I'll quote here, the Christian faith, after all, beginning with our Lord himself, stands in total contradiction to the primary worldview and values of our fallen, broken world. It should therefore not be surprising that those who stand in opposition to such a world and its primary values should regularly experience the scorn and hatred of those who prefer Satan's values to Christ's. So this flies in the face of the so-called health and wealth gospel that, that is unfortunately becoming more pervasive in our land, but thankfully not here at Oakland. We understand the, the true gospel. So I'm going to steal a phrase from Aaron and say, let's land this plane <laughs> and talk about the, uh, the dangers of the tempter um, and who is, who is Satan. So Paul talks about that in, in the end of verse 5. Um, so he says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So who is this tempter? Well, it's Satan himself and his legion of demons. Now, Satan is not omnipresent, so he can't be in all places at once. But unfortunately, in our, in our world, he has a, a legion to, to help him with that. First um, Peter 5.8 says, To be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Um, John Piper writes this. He says that one of the most sobering facts about life is that all humans, not just Christians, not just non-believers, but all humans, have a supernatural enemy whose aim is to use pain and pleasure to make us blind, stupid, and miserable forever. So Satan can use trials, but he can also use things to distract us from, you know, from God. It's even pleasurable. Uh, but his ultimate goal is to keep us from God. So that sounds really disheartening. But students, remember, our enemy Satan is already defeated. Jesus is won. The ultimate victory is won. But that being said, Satan can still lead us astray in the present world and the present time. Um, so how can he do this? I've got a list of, of nine ways with some references to uh, Scripture that talks about how Satan can lead us astray. And I'll also have to give John Piper credit for this. Some of this came from, uh, from his site, Desiring God, um, which I commend to you, Jack. There's some good stuff on there. But first of all, Satan lies, right? His first recorded words in the Bible are a lie. You know, he taught Adam and Eve in the garden and convinced them that God didn't have their best, best interest in mind. In John 8.44, Jesus says of Satan, so this is a quote of Jesus, because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So just know that he will lie to you. He will tell you things that are not true. So Satan also can blind the minds of unbelievers. So he hides what is true from unbelievers. He, he tries to cover up the gospel message. But thankfully, the gospel has power. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world, which is Satan, 
has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. All the more reason that we need to shine our light brightly uh, throughout the world, throughout our community, throughout our school, so that we can over, so that the power of the gospel can overcome Satan's attempts to blind people from the truth. Uh, so Satan can actually disguise himself as something good, which can fool a lot of people. Think of false teachers who appear on the outside as really good people. Uh, so 2 Corinthians also speaks to this in chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. It says, For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Uh, so we always need to look at people who are teaching us, at people who are uh, trying to pour into us, and we need to compare them to the truth, the truth of the Bible, the truth of the gospel. If it doesn't line up with that, then it is a lie. And false teachers can be difficult to spot sometimes. We have to be grounded in the truth so that we know when falsehoods are present. Because Satan will look like something good at times, but ultimately it leads to death and destruction. So he can actually perform signs and wonders, which will lead people astray. Uh, Matthew 24, 24, Jesus actually says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead us astray. You can think back to the Old Testament. You know, Pharaoh, when Moses came and, and was uh, you know, performing miracles, they actually, his wizards and, and, and uh, I guess wizards, for lack of a better word, could, could perform some of the things or, or you know, fake some of the things that Moses was doing, but ultimately God showed his power in the end and, and did things that they could not perform. So even signs and wonders sometimes can be, you know, can be from, from Satan. So Satan will tempt us to sin. That's, that's fairly, uh, fairly well known. But, you know, he tried to do that to Jesus in the wilderness. If you, you know, remember back to when we were going through Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, you know, he, he tempted uh, Jesus repeatedly in the wilderness. But Jesus continually resisted him uh, because Jesus lived a perfect life and did not sin. Uh, this was an interesting one to me that I, I you know, when, when you think of a parable. Um, but Satan can pluck the word of God out of unbelievers' hearts and choke off, their, choke off their faith. So that's what Paul was worried about in the Thessalonian church. He had been there sowing the seeds of the gospel to these, to these people, and it had converts. Um, but he was concerned that the tempter had come behind him and plucked some of these seeds from these people. Um, we can actually look at the parable Jesus gives in, in Mark chapter 4, and thankfully Jesus actually explains it a little later in the chapter, so we don't even have to wonder. Sometimes parables are hard to understand, but this one Jesus just laid it out there for us. <laughs> so this is the parable of the sower, uh, of the seed that falls on the path, and the birds come and devour it. That's in Mark 4.3. But in 4.15, Jesus said, um, explains it and says, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. So this is what Paul is afraid of, because remember, he was probably only with them for a very short time before he was run out of town by these leaders. So Paul is really worried that these seeds that he had tried to plant, these seeds of the gospel, that Satan would come behind and take some of them away. So Satan can cause some sickness and disease. Certainly not all. Okay, I want to be clear on that. All sickness and disease is not of Satan. You can think about um, 
you know, Paul's thorn in the flesh that he talks of, which we don't know exactly precisely what that was, but he mentions it several times throughout, the, throughout his writings. Um, and he says it was basically given by God to help sanctify him, to help ground him. Uh, so, so that is certainly not a case where Satan caused a disease or illness. Um, but if you want to look in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says of the woman he just healed, ought not this woman whom Satan bound for 18 years be loose from his bottom. So Jesus himself recognizes and says that, that the devil can cause disease at times. Uh, so Satan's a murderer. Pretty self-explanatory. He orchestrated the very first murder in the Bible, in human history, actually. The very first murder in human history. The killing of Abel by Cain, which is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4. I think all of you are pretty familiar with that. Um, with that uh, account. Uh, and, and the last thing that I, I saw is uh, Satan fights against the spread of the gospel, the work of gospel missionaries, and the ongoing discipleship of Christians. You know, here, Satan is hindering Paul from returning to his ongoing discipleship. You know, all you have to do is just think back a few verses where Paul says that Satan hindered us again and again from returning to these believers to strengthen their faith, to exhort and establish them in their faith. So that's a lot, right? That's a lot of things that Satan is that he can do. So given all this, what are we to do about it? So James 4.7 says to resist the devil, with the result being the devil will flee from you. How do we do that? So first and foremost, we have to trust in the triumph of Christ at the cross. Through prayer, through the reading of the word, by putting on the whole armor of God, and by worshiping the one true God. So, students' scripture memory, developing these strong relationships with other believers who can hold you accountable, faithfully worshiping together on the Lord's Day, as Al Jackson would like to say. <laughs> and uh, all of these will help us resist the errors of temptation that can be formed our way by Satan. So, ultimately, without Jesus, we have no chance to resist the devil. We are his. But with Jesus, ultimately, Satan has no chance. That's good news to us. So, in conclusion, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a spoiler for next week. We already talked about it a little bit, but Timothy brings back good news of the Thessalonian church's faith and their love. And you'll hear more about that next week. Um, but, but the seeds that Paul planted did not fall on the path on the rocky ground. They fell in fertile soil. They were watered, they were managed. Um, and they grew into a church that we see in the rest of this uh, in the rest of this book.